A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. wanted to stand out from the crowd. He wanted to look better than any other man, indeed any other monarch. He spent £8,000 a year on clothes. That's the equivalent of more than £2 million today. Venetian ambassador Sebastian Justinian said of him, He is the best-dressed sovereign in the world. His robes are the richest and most superb that can be imagined, and he puts on new clothes every holy day. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm delving into Henry VIII's wardrobe with Professor Maria Hayward to find out more about doublets and hose, stocks and gowns, and that all-important symbol of virility, the codpiece. Really, if there's anything you want to know about clothing in the 16th century, Professor Hayward is your woman. Maria has written books including Dress at the Court of Henry VIII, Rich Apparel, Clothing and the Law, has done work on the inventory of Henry VIII from 1547. And your latest book is Stuart Style, Monarchy Dress and the Scottish Male Elite. So Professor Hayward knows everything there is to know about what people wore. And this fascinating insight into clothing and fabrics and cuts and the significance of these things is what we're going to be delving into today. And we're going to be thinking about Henry VIII, described as the best-dressed sovereign in the world. Why do people say that about him? What does that mean? In part, I think it's bravado. Certainly Francis I, maybe not Charles V, but Francis I would certainly have disputed that comment, I suspect, as might indeed Suleiman the Magnificent, possibly. But in a North European context, clothes were power, and especially for early modern kings, it was a highly competitive process. And I think certainly between Francis and Henry, they liked to outdo each other or aimed to outdo each other in all spheres. And while Henry might struggle in some areas, in clothing, I think he certainly could rival Francis. And he would have loved the idea that he was the best dressed monarch in the world. I'm sure that would have really appealed to his self-image. Yes, so he famously rivals Francis, who's the king of France at this time, about the same age as Henry VIII, slightly younger, by comparing their calves, doesn't he? Everybody (laughs) knows the story of who has the finest calf. If we think about clothes, I suppose actually the first thing to say when thinking about clothes in the past is we always talk about it as costume, don't we? And I always wonder why we say costume when we're talking about clothes. I find it slightly patronising. Am I being oversensitive or do you feel the same? (laughs) No, absolutely. I think traditionally 
in dress history, as you say, it is very much referred to as costume, but that tends to conjure up ideas of national dress. And it also is slightly belittling. And I think in part it comes from the idea that it's predominantly women that are interested in clothes and that clothes are frivolous. Whereas actually, of course, as we've just hinted at with that reference to Henry VIII being the best dressed monarch in the world, clothes were hugely important in terms of projecting the image of the monarch and also, of course, by reflection, the image of their country. And equally, if we look at this as another way round, Henry VI is often presented as the least well-dressed English monarch. And as a consequence, that just goes hand in hand with the fact that he is a political disaster, that, you know, the two seem to be married together, not necessarily fairly. But yes, clothing is a vital part of an early modern monarch's identity. And so, yes, I think the idea of costume is rather patronising. And personally, I would much prefer clothing or dress. These are things that people wore and they made active choices and they were intended to sort of fashion an identity for themselves. That's fascinating. So clothes are about power and they're about politics and they aren't frivolous or no, trivial. definitely not. I suppose we probably ought to start by thinking about what people wore in the Tudor period. <laughs> and immediately as I say that, I'm aware that at one end of the Tudor period is very different <laughs> from the other. So let's perhaps we'll focus down on Henry VIII's reign, which is 1509 to 1547, and think about what did a man's outfit consist of in the early Tudor period? The main garment that they would have put on first in the morning would have been their shirt. And for someone of relatively high status that would have been a white linen shirt with long sleeves and the neck would have been quite a low neckline in the 1510s and 20s but gradually by the time we get to the 1530s and 40s it would be a high neckline ending in a little ruffle. Over that you would have had your doublet which is the main body garment and goes from the waist up, usually with full length sleeves. And that would have been paired with your hose. Now, these cover the legs. And in the Tudor period, they usually consist of a pair of what, in essence, look like very tight fitting stockings, in essence, that would have come all the way to the waist. And certainly for the period we're interested in, the later part of Henry's reign, they would have been worn with an upper pair of stocks, as they're referred to, that are that full part of the hose that would cover the upper part of the thighs and to the hips and that then your doublet would be attached to your hose with points which are long lengths of either cord or ribbon that would go through an eyelet hole in the waistband of the doublet and one to the hose so that the two were kept respectably together and then the front of the hose would close with a codpiece and of course those are one of the quintessential elements of Tudor male dress. Over this, if you are a man of wealth, you would have had a gown in the early part of Henry's reign, towards the latter part of the reign. Certainly younger men will replace that with a cloak. And then you would finish this off with a hat because no Tudor man was well dressed without one. And you would use it to display etiquette to other men and also to the women that you would meet. And on your feet, you would have a pair of relatively flat Tudor shoes of the sort that are very familiar from the Whitehall mural, for instance. So it's a fascinating difference in terms of clothing. There's no danger of being untucked because the bottoms and the tops are tied together. So the only way to go to the loo is that cob piece for a man. And one thinks of the weight of the clothing. So it's not on the belt around the waist. It's all very much on the shoulders, isn't it? And then the weight of the gown. Is that right? 
Yes, absolutely. So the traditional image for the early Tudor man that Henry essentially is, is, as you say, quite a substantial imposing presence that you make because of the layers and as you say it's all designed to accentuate the shoulders and there's not really much sense of a waist especially when you've got the gown on that's not the aim if we were say looking later at Elizabeth's reign they're much more close fitting so you know you'd still do see the shoulders but you also get a sense of the waist the hips and the legs in a way that you don't quite so much in that classic 1530s 1540s look. So are the changes over time, I'm thinking of that wonderful picture of the man in red. We don't know who he was, but that's from the 1540s, isn't it? And it looks like the gown has got a little higher by that point in time. What else has changed over the course of the sort of first half of the 16th century? Yes, that's one of the main changes. So for young men, you know, you get the sense that he was probably in his early to mid 20s in that portrait. So by the 1540s, young fashionable men have either got a very short gown or they are starting to move towards replacing that with a cloak instead. And as a consequence, by that outer layer becoming shorter, this puts more emphasis on the under layers because they're much more visible. Um, And in particular, younger men are wanting to show off their legs and increasingly we're getting tighter hose and that that upper part of the hose is becoming shorter and tighter. And as you say, you are going to be very much admired on not only the quality of your calves, as Henry and Francis were competing over in that 1520s period, but by this point it's going to be much more the thighs. It's fascinating, isn't it? The changes over time, that it's much more now, if anybody's legs are to be admired, it tends to be women's, <laughs> whereas women's legs are completely covered up at this point in time, and it's the men showing off their legs. Yes, absolutely. And as you say, there is that sense of competition, and it will get more so as the century progresses and into the 17th century, that yes, good legs are a real asset to a man at this period. And how does this change over different ranks of society? The picture you've conjured up, that applies for Henry VIII and perhaps nobility. How far down the social scale does it apply? Um, Yes, so that is very much for the elite. If we were looking at more the middling sort, some of the sort of affluent merchants, such as the Greshams, for instance, they would be dressed in a similar style. In that sense, often the merchants are not surprisingly promoting the textiles that they trade in. Whereas, as you say, if we were looking more at the yeoman of society, they would have a doublet and hose and gown. But there's that lovely drawing by Holbein of a man of the middling sort. And he's got a long gown on at the point where more fashionable men would have been starting to get a slightly shorter gown. So he's still conveying ideas of wealth for his status, but his is more in that sense of the substance of what he's wearing. But yes, so I think, as you say, all of the changes of fashion, those are much more accessible to those with more money and the style of their clothing will change to reflect those alterations more quickly whereas for men in the middling ranks and equally the professional ranks the gown would remain the definitive item for doctors and lawyers right through the 16th century and beyond. Yes I suppose when we think about gowns at all we're not talking about female dress we're thinking about an academic gown or a gown perhaps a member of the clergy might wear and that's where this comes from isn't it these gowns. Yeah absolutely. And so that merchant with his long gown is wearing something just like that as opposed to the shorter and more fashionable ones that are coming in at the time. Yes 
indeed. And what are these things made out of? That's the other thing to think about, I suppose, in terms of fabrics. Mm. So the shirt would have been made from linen and for the wealthy, like Henry, that would have been imported linen from the Low Countries where they produced very high quality linen and also they were very good at bleaching it. So you got the really white linen that again was a real marker of status. Home produced linens would have been a little coarser maybe a little less white. And for people lower down the social order, you might not have had as much bleached linen anyway. So your doublet and hose, for men of the sort of middle ranks, those would have been predominantly wool at this period. But for the elite, we would be looking at a range of silk fabrics. And again, those would range from simple plain weave silks such as a sarsenet to silk satins, which have got a gorgeous sheen. Then you have the silk damasks with usually a a self-coloured pattern. And then you get into the really expensive silks, such as the velvets with single or double or triple cut piles. So different heights of pile help create the design. And then, of course, those that have metal thread integrated in them, such as the cloth of gold, cloth of tissue. So, yes, it is an amazing spectrum of fabrics. And again, it was very much a question of the higher you were up in the social hierarchy, the more of these expensive imported silks that you were likely to be wearing. I remember you describing to me once that cloth of gold is a spiral of gold through which the silk is threaded. Is that correct? And what's the difference of cloth of tissue? Cloth of gold and cloth of silver incorporate these metal wrap threads. So you usually have a silk core and those can be different colours around which the metal strip is wrapped. And you can then have one layer, two, three. So, you know, they're wrapped in different ways to create the effect. So with a cloth of gold, the metal thread is woven in and incorporated directly into the weave. Whereas with a cloth of tissue, they make it into little loops. So it gives you this three dimensional effect. So, again, it's just much more extravagant. This was why it was the pinnacle of the fabric hierarchy because not only did it contain threads wrapped with either gold or silver or silver gilt more usually but that also it was used in these loops to create this three-dimensional effect so you might need double or three times the amount of thread that you would need for a plain woven cloth of gold or silver for instance. That's fascinating and of course these things must have been very heavy to wear. Yes, and I think that's one of the things that with multiple layers of clothing and in addition then to the top fabrics for all of these, say your doublet, then most of them would have had a stiffening and a lining as well. And for winter, for instance, you could have your fur linings put into your gown. So yes, as you say, you've got lots of layers potentially that would have been very heavy. And on top of that as well, then there's also a lot of decoration, a lot of embellishment for the elite. So you might as well have a fur collar on your gown so this is another reason I think why Henry looks so substantial in that Whitehall mural he was a big man but he's helped by the clothes to look even more imposing yes I mean his gown is really voluminous there emphasizing his figure his shoulders I think I suppose the other interesting thing about the fabrics is when we think about the sumptuary laws you know the fact that there are laws governing who can wear what at different levels of society I've always wanted to know how much that's just posture basically how much it just is saying that certain people can't wear things and how much there's any sense that these things are ever enforced and tell me about those please 
Yes, absolutely. So this is one of the big frustrations with the sumptuary laws. And one of the big questions that people ask about them is, were they enforced? We don't have that much evidence of them being enforced in Henry's reign. Woolsey seeks to enforce them on one or two occasions. Needless to say, that makes him incredibly unpopular. And in particular, of course, people then say that he's doing this because he's a social climber himself and that he's trying to stop those above him enjoying the things that they're entitled to. However, what's interesting is that I think while they aren't vigorously enforced, if you actually look at what people owned at different levels of society, most people at most levels of society were relatively self-regulating and pretty much wore roughly in the area that they were supposed to. The one area, perhaps not surprisingly, where you get people pushing the boundaries are those at the gentry area. So those who are keen to rise up into the lower nobility or establish themselves with a landed power base, as it were. They're the ones who are trying to look more glamorous and and wealthier and more illustrious than they actually were. So they are dressing to impress. (laughs) They're trying to carry off a higher status than they actually have. Yes, absolutely. It is very interesting. And of course, I think one of the other things that's worth stressing here is that with the legislation that Henry passes, the legislation applies to men, not to women. And so women could wear whatever their menfolk could afford for them to wear. Although obviously, if they were pushing a little too hard at some of the boundaries outside what they were really allowed, that could have caused problems locally and that's what people tending to be self-regulating that they tended to look at those around them in their immediate vicinity you wanted to look as good as your neighbours but you didn't necessarily want to be seriously outshining your neighbours because unless you could justify it you were going to end up with a bit of a backlash against how people would comment on your appearance but yes you get the sense that people are aware of what they were supposed to be wearing I think the other thing that's interesting about the sumptuary law is that it is very much focused in Henry's reign on the landed hierarchy. So this means that merchants, for instance, aren't really covered by it. And so it means that, again, you can see that in an urban context, it's where it would have been harder to enforce anyway. That's not really where their interests lie. Henry's really interested in the aristocracy, keeping them in their place so that they don't challenge that reputation of him as being the best dressed in the country. Yes, so let's get back to Henry and what he had in his wardrobe and what examples that we have of what he wore. Because nothing survives, presumably. No, in that sense, it's deeply frustrating that nothing survives that we can categorically associate with the king. There are a couple of pieces that are suggested one being a little doe skin hawking glove and a hawk hood but they are just tantalizing what's interesting about them is that they're very high quality they use the metal thread and the hawk hood is covered in cloth of tissue so it fits with the idea of Henry wanting the very best of everything but they do not give us the sense of the absolute magnificence of what he was wearing and this is deeply frustrating in that sense I suspect one of the best things to think about in terms of just getting a sense of the quality of what these clothes would have been like is to look at the Stonyhurst vestments. Now, obviously, these are liturgical textiles, but in terms of the quality of the cloth of tissue, which was a special commission for Henry VII, it really gives you a sense of just how sumptuous these textiles would have been, in both in terms of the richness of the colour, the quantity of metal thread, 
that gives you a sense of what something for the royal market would have looked like. There are garments that survive, therefore. Is it Stonyhurst College you're talking about, that they have things surviving there that we could go and see, perhaps? The Stonyhurst vestments, we've got one cope and one chasuble. Those are on display. They're on long loan to the Victorian Albert Museum and they are in the British galleries. And so, yes, you can see those there and they give, I think, a really good sense in terms of the opulence of the types of textiles that Henry was wearing. Unfortunately, other than that, we are very much then reliant on written sources and on portraits. And while they are both marvellous, they both do pose some problems in terms of how to interpret them. What sort of problems do you get? I mean, is it possible to corroborate between a portrait and a written source or is that one of the problems (laughs) I mean how do you get information that you need and what problems do they provide well in terms of the written evidence which is the area that we have the most material in we have some inventories we have clothing accounts for the king but only for certain years from his life which is both on the one hand marvellous that we have them but we don't have a complete run for his reign for instance so you can't look at all 37 years and actively chart his wardrobe you just literally have snapshots from different years So that's one challenge. Also, I think the accounts were written for fellow accountants and tailors, both of whom knew different things about either the quality of the fabrics or the types of garments. And as such, you know, there were lots of things left unsaid because they didn't need to say them. So we are left with what they did tell us. So usually, for instance, if they're describing a doublet that's being made for the king, they will tell us what the main fabric is, both in terms of the weave and the fibre and the colour. They will usually tell us how much fabric was supplied. We will get information on the lining and interlining and trimmings and these sorts of things. But you're still left with a degree of uncertainty if it says, you know, with applied bands. You don't quite know where. So there are lots of things that you are left not knowing. Whereas, for instance, with portraiture, they give us a visual sense of what the garments might look like. But one of the big challenges with Tudor clothes, and especially men's clothes, is that they have multiple layers. You only see the outermost layer. Usually in a portrait, you see it from the front. Quite often with portraits for Henry's reign, you only see them from the waist up. So in that sense, they pose all sorts of problems. If you think of the smaller Holbein that's in the Thiessen collection, you know, you don't even see all of the sleeve. So they tell you a lot, but they also exclude a lot. And I think one of the biggest problems for Henry is that while you get a sense that we have these wonderful images by Holbein, that we don't have very many and they are dominated by the Whitehall mural and that influences a lot of the later copies, the later full lengths that are produced and I think everybody tends to think of Henry looking like that particular set of clothes and he had a much, much wider wardrobe in terms of style, design, colour ranges, types of decoration, styles of clothing. So while it gives us a wonderful image of him, it has rather dominated how we think of him in terms of his clothing. Yes, that's really interesting. And I think we particularly see that perhaps about films. Whenever we've seen Henry VIII on film since Charles Lawton in the 1930s or whatever, they've been reproducing that Whitehall mural outfit, haven't Mm. they? Yes, absolutely. Does that drive you up the wall? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose.
suppose it has the virtue of being iconic, so it is the thing that people associate with Henry. The difficulty is that he tends to get dressed in it, regardless of which period, you know, whether it's a young Henry, an older Henry, they always put him in that particular style. Whereas his accounts suggest that, for instance, one of the things that is really interesting is that you can see that there's not quite a colour for each season, but there'll be, say, you know, one year he orders in one six-month period, the predominant colour will, say, be green, for instance. And so there were green items interspersed with other colours, but he could also appear all in green, rather like that young man in red that you mentioned. I think that idea that they would be dressed all in one colour is something that we don't really think about very often if we think about the Whitehall cartoon or the the painted versions of that image because they suggest that the gown is one colour and it's over garments of different colours and different types of material. So yes, it is slightly frustrating that that is the source that people invariably go to when they want to create the sense of Henry. Yes, he could have had a purple season and he could have had a yellow season and we would never know. What colours were possible? (laughs) Yes, well, both those colours were possible. He tended to keep purple for very formal days of state, so Christmas and times like that. But yellow, definitely. There are some lovely examples of him ordering some amazing knitted hose in yellow and purple, which he must have looked quite dashing and striking in. And these are ordered in in the 1540s so he wasn't as slim as he'd been either so he would have been quite a substantial figure in this amazing yellow and purple outfit so yes he liked bright colours I think that's one of the things that we don't tend to get a sense of the bright colours and a wide variety. Yes we tend to think of it all as being slightly sort of russet and browns don't we yes yes but actually what you're talking about is that we should think more of sort of malvolio's cross-gartered yellow stockings (laughs) (laughs) he definitely had yellow white we have things that are described as sort of carnation there are quite a lot of these sort of light tawny colors that are more towards orangey shades he doesn't wear very much blue it wasn't a high status color but lots of green for hunting And there are all of those lovely descriptions, for instance, where he bursts in on Catherine of Aragon on May Day, all dressed in green. So, yes, I think there's that definite sense that colour was something they played around with more than we get a sense of, I think, in those traditional portraits of him. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological... This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. 
Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Did different colours have different significances? Obviously purple is a royal colour, but were there other ones? Thinking about this idea of some discussion about whether when Catherine of Aragon died and Henry or Anne Boleyn, the sources vary, dressed in yellow, was that the colour of mourning? That's one thing, or the Spanish colour of mourning is one thing that's sometimes cited, isn't it? It is, yes. It is fascinating, this association of symbolism to colours. I don't think we tend to see quite as much of it in Henry's reign as we do later. So let's say if we were looking at Elizabeth's wardrobe, I think we would definitely find that there are a lot more examples of that. But certainly, yes, that use of purple, scarlet, blue, all of these are very distinctive and tied to the liturgical year. One of the other areas where we find Henry using a lot of colour are the clothes that are ordered for the jousts as well. And we see lots of yellow and blue and lots of party coloured clothes, which, again, you don't see in his own fashionable wardrobe. Yes, and I'm thinking of that example when he burst in on Anne of Cleves with half a dozen of them dressed identically in multi-coloured cloaks. I always wondered if they looked like a troop of jesters. Yes, I think they would have done in as much as for elite men, that idea of party coloured livery would not have been something that they would have worn except for these sorts of court entertainments or occasions when you are trying to confuse the viewer or in this case ask her to guess which one's Henry and as we know when she first meets him she doesn't recognise him so that could be a bit more of a challenge for Anne. So there's two layers of interpretation going on there on one level they're supposed to look like jesters but you're also supposed to know that they're trying to look like jesters and therefore they must be members of the court and probably the king. But she doesn't know that second thing. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I think also the fact for those sorts of events, you know, that use of very expensive fabrics as well. So, you know, you would be, again, going back to the costumes for the teams jousting, they would have been made of satins, damasks, velvets, cloth of gold so while they are party coloured which is making you look like lower members of the household going back to the idea of the two delivery colours of green and white on the other hand you're teaming this idea of how you're playing with colour but then layering it onto these hugely expensive fabrics so as you say you would know as soon as you saw those fabrics used in those ways that this is the elite at play as it were. I love the idea that they were going to joust looking like peacocks, completely arrayed in colour. 
I'd never even thought of that before. Yes, and they are usually in teams as well. So there will be Henry's team and they will all be dressed the same and then there'll be the challengers. So absolutely, especially if Henry jousted with Brandon as opposed to against him, those two might be dressed exactly the same and in the same range of colours as the rest, but in a better quality than the rest and so again all of those gradations that were played out within the sumptuary law could also be seen in that context as well that's charles brandon duke of suffolk who for much of the reign is henry's brother-in-law and is also a good friend so yes it's quite a sort of little boyish isn't it that they're going out to joust dressed in the same clothes but identifiable and what are particularly sumptuous or interesting examples of garments that you've come across So in terms of Henry's clothes, I personally really like the descriptions of them from the inventories that we have. They give us a slightly different sense to how they're described in the warrants. So, for instance, these are from his inventory in 1521. We have a doublet of purple cloth of gold tissue lined with black satin, covered with silver tissue, cut and edged with silver tissue, with hose to the same. So it's got matching hose, and it was valued at £49, this set. Or another example of a doublet of crimson cloth of gold tissue, embroidered with white cloth of silver, lined with crimson sarsenet. So that was just a doublet by itself, and that was valued at £38. So these things are hugely expensive and what's rather nice is you get this whole sense of different colours different types so far we've been talking about doublets and hose but they had coats jackets jerkins that's the other thing that's really interesting about the male wardrobe that there are a much wider range of garments especially for the upper body for wealthy men and so again there's that option to use a modern phrase you could sort of mix and match the various elements that you have to create a variety of different garments and again this is the sense that the garments within the Tudor wardrobe are quite flexible and you can wear one doublet with the hose that were made for it you can wear it with different hose a different gown and so this idea of having a wardrobe that seems to have endless possibilities within it is sort of built into the way in which you could combine garments together to create different looks for different occasions. And I suppose it's always difficult to convert money into modern day money i'm thinking of an equivalent the national archives has a currency converter which tells me that in 2017 this would be worth 25,481 pounds you said it was quite expensive it's a different level of quite expensive oh absolutely i thought i would just have a look at what he spent on clothes so This won't be the full amount, but it will be the amount that is on the clothing warrants made for the great wardrobe. So there would have been other purchases on top of this. But in 1521 to 22, he spent £425, 17 shillings and tuppence, which, as you say, if you use the National Archive converter, converts to £221,456. Whereas in 1543 to 45, so it's a slightly longer accounting period, he spent £2,551, five shillings and ninepence, which comes to the princely, or should we say kingly, £1,075,000. And that's just on him. So if we add in the rest of his family and then what they were spending on livery for the royal household, you can see why clothing becomes such 
such an important part of anybody's outgoings at this point. That is extraordinary. So he's spending in a two year period the equivalent of over a million pounds on his clothes. No wonder he's described as the best dressed sovereign in the world. <laughs> I don't think I ever realised it was that much. I think it's in part because, as you were saying, about getting these snapshots. So it's hard to get a sort of total sense. But if we extrapolate from that, it's clear that he's spending the equivalent of millions and millions, billions potentially of pounds on his clothes, which means it really matters to him. Yes. And I think it's interesting that the amount he spends on his appearance doesn't tail off as he gets older. In fact, you can see that he considers his appearance matters as much or more as he's getting older. And that's one of the things I always find very interesting, where you mentioned the portrait of the young man in red, and he's dressed in that very dashing, much more glamorous style than Henry is when he's painted in the 1540s. If you compare Henry the eighth to Henry Howard and that amazing portrait where he has on that very tight fitting doublet that's very tight to the chest really pulled in at the waist and those very tight hose and then with the cloak just perched on one shoulder he looks like the epitome of the sort of healthy young adult male that is Henry's rival at this point and you can see why I think Henry is desperate to try and suggest that all is well he is well you know he's going to be there to make sure that Edward will succeed I think he doesn't give in and resign himself Tudor equivalent of fluffy slippers and uh... the lockdown attire you mean no so <laughs> Henry VIII never goes into <laughs> lockdown attire it is actually marvellous so let's come back then to thinking about film because most of us when we think about Henry VIII's clothes are going off the basis of what we've seen you know, Jonathan Reese Myers wearing in the Tudors or more recently Damien Lewis in <laughs> Wolf Hall. As a historian of dress, what do you make of these depictions? Well, I suppose the Jonathan Reese Myers depiction is interesting for a whole variety of reasons, um, not least because, of course, he doesn't age during the course of this and his body doesn't change shape, whereas, of course, we know that Henry's does and that's one of the things that's actually really interesting about the accounts that that feeling that there are certain things that as he gets older because there are certain concessions to the fact that he's a little less mobile than he had been when he's young so there are things that are a bit warmer and more comfortable but he still has all of the formal magnificent items as well but of course the designers for Jonathan Rees Myers didn't consider the early Tudor clothes that attractive so they edged more towards what we would more reasonably have seen in Elizabeth's reign as they felt you know it was more flattering and obviously it created the image of Henry that they wanted to create so in that sense the clothes for Wolf Hall I think are much more accurate to what we know Henry would have been wearing I think one of the things that is interesting, though, in terms of watching the Tudors is that it does give you a really good sense of the scale of the household and the magnificence of the household. And, you know, in some of the events, say, where we see some of the masks and things like that, again, while the gown that Anne Boleyn wears isn't necessarily quite what you'd have thought she would have been wearing, I think the idea of that sense of the fantasy nature of the costumes that they create for those occasions is conveyed well. And so it's one of those things. 
I must admit, I did not watch the Tudors expecting to find a completely accurate depiction of Tudor dress. What I did get from it was a real sense of the sort of the colour of the Tudor court and just how important clothing was at the Tudor court. But yes, I suspect that that is one thing to avoid when watching any historic drama. I find I just do not look at the clothing in that way and then I enjoy what I'm watching. But if you otherwise, you could spend your whole time thinking this isn't right and that's not right. But then that spoils the enjoyment of the entertainment they provide. Yes, of course. And it's so hard to do that, but I'm very impressed that you do. <laughs> I suppose the other thing is a story. I think it's about the Tudors. Or was it Wolf Hall? The American producers thought that the cod pieces looked a bit too big, really, too obvious. Is that right? Yes, I think so. I think it was the Tudors. But yes, so that's why they just don't have them. And again, I think that is really problematic because, of course, they are an absolutely integral part of the Tudor male wardrobe in that respect. Although it's fascinating that if you look at the descriptions of pairs of hose, they never mention them. There is never a mention that the hose are like this, oh, and the cod piece is like that. That is an example of how clearly it was such an integral part of the hose that the clerk did not feel the need to mention that it is there, which I always find is rather intriguing. That's fascinating. So we only therefore know of their existence through portraiture. Would that be right? Or is there anything else? No, no, no. So we definitely see them in portraiture, but also there are surviving pairs of 16th century hose, in particular, some really nice examples in Dresden, for instance, and those have the codpiece attached. And so in that sense, it is possible to actually study the construction of them, the way in which they change shape, the size, you know, obviously the size of the codpiece in part relates to the volume of the upper part of the hose. If they've got very full upper hose, the codpiece needs to be a reasonable size, otherwise it's just going to get lost in the folds of the fabric and then there's almost a sense of, well, what's the point? So it needs to be a certain size to actually make a presence if you're wearing the hose. So yes, surviving examples are one of the best ways of looking at the construction, how the copies functions in terms of the tailoring of the hose. And they become increasingly complex, actually, in terms of the making of them. We talk about the codpiece, you know, just mention it. But it is extraordinary to me that for, what is it, about 60 years or something, that you've got a period of time in which it is fashionable for men to walk around with a facsimile of an erect penis in front of them. I mean, it blows one's mind. How could it be? Absolutely. As you say, I think it's when, you know, our historians talk about the swagger pose. Well, I think it's just the whole thing is about swagger at this point. And especially if you look at the portrait of Henry that Holbein produces, you know, this is designed to draw the eye. You'd have been a very unwise individual turning up to court, probably with a larger codpiece than the king, I suspect. And equally, as people have written, I think, you know, the codpiece is important for Henry in terms of that whole question of no son until 1536. I think there's an element of bravado, isn't there, up until that point where Francis I's got posse of sons and he doesn't. But it is, it is one of those real quirks of fashion as to quite why they, well, why they have one is because it just covers where the front opening of the hose is, but why they chose that as a means of covering the front opening of the hose is a whole other question. It is extraordinary. And then, of course, goes out of fashion later in the 16th century, when you've got a woman on the throne. 
Exactly. But then I think the men are presenting their bodies in different ways. If you look at the portraits of Dudley and Essex, for instance, they've got these really tight fitting doublets that sort of accentuate the waist. They've got these really tight fitting hose that accentuate the hips and they're very short and they are designed to really show off the legs and indeed if we move into James's reign we have descriptions of James's eye being caught by young men dressed in exactly the same way. So it's interesting to see how beauty and power are signalled in terms of what people choose to wear over this period of time and how that changes. Yes, absolutely and virility in that sense I think you know Henry is definitely keen to suggest all is well in the kingdom don't worry I've been working my way through wives at a rapid rate and there's still no son and then Edward's born and he's confidently asserting that he's as much a man as as Francis. Well he's certainly still doing that in if we think of the 1545 family of Henry VIII painting where he's got his arm round Edward on one side but he's sat wearing a very distinctly differently coloured codpiece to the rest of his attire the message is still being put across isn't it? Oh absolutely as you say it is very apparent in that portrait and of course the other area where it's also very apparent is if you look at the king's armour if you go and have a look at any of those famous suits of armour in the tower. I remember speaking to someone who specialised in armour and, you know, armour has to fit really well to protect the body. The only element that they ever exaggerate, oh, sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said exaggerate, but just, you know, correct size even. (laughs) The codpiece is, as you might imagine, they're never particularly small on these armours. And I think it's really interesting that the armour just translates straight out of fashionable clothing and and into armour. Yes, you wouldn't have thought you'd necessarily needed to waste the metal (laughs) for that, but apparently so. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk about Henry VIII's clothes, and I feel like we've only just started (laughs) to scrape the surface of this topic, but maybe we'll talk about it again. And I would absolutely love it if you would come back on particularly and talk about women's clothes let's talk about how we clothe Tudor queens in this period that would be fascinating that would be lovely well Maria Hayward thank you so much for coming on to talk about Henry VIII and his clothes because it is I think a topic that gives us a real insight into the mind of this man I mean I had no idea that he spent the equivalent of billions on his clothes. I've learnt that today. And to get a sense of what those things look like has been so fascinating. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.